So I had an interesting experience this last week at the national, we were at our national convention. Alice and I were out in New York and we're part of the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies and every year there's a big convention. And so I've been in the fellowship for 30 years and you, you develop a lot of friendships, but there was a guy comes up to me the first night and I've only met this guy twice, and he, he pulls me aside, and he says, before the week is out, I have to have a few minutes with you. I'm like, great. We couldn't do it right then because we were going into a meeting, and I didn't think a thing about it until it's the very last night. We're at the altar call, and I see him. I'm like, oh, yeah, we forgot to have our, our few minutes together. So I tugged him on the sleeve, and I said, should we, should we talk? And I said, yes, let's do it. And so we, we, we sits down, and... And he, he's got this intensity about him. And he says, uh, he says, there are two men who have, who, who have changed my life. And he said, I just, I really felt like I needed to tell you this. He said, he said one of them is that guy right over there. And I, and I knew that guy was his pastor for like 25 years. He says, that, that, that's one. And he said, and the other one is you. And I'm just, we've only met twice. I just, I cannot figure out why I would have made a difference in his life. And then he told me one time we had gotten together and he had confessed some stuff. This is one of the two times I met him. He had confessed some stuff that he had confessed to no one else. And I told him something. And God set him free in just a few minutes, and it led him to a freedom that he had walked in from that time to this time, absolutely changed his life. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what it was that I told him? That's gonna come at the very end of the service. All right, could we, could we stand together in honor of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the, time when, at the time when kings go out to battle. The David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word, for your whole word, not just the parts that are easy to preach. Thank you for the whole truth. Would you please speak today? Sometimes what we want and what we need are two different things. Speak to us what we need today, God. We will give you all the glory for every good thing that happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. You can sit down. The title of the message is 
true repentance, point one, is a recipe for disaster. Here was the problem. David was blessed everywhere he went. He was successful in everything he did. He was the golden boy. Whatever he touched turned to gold. 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David became famous. David was successful. David, everywhere he went, the Lord was with him, giving him victory. And you say, Pastor Tom, what could possibly be wrong with that? Here's the problem. Success is actually harder on us than failure. Success makes us more vulnerable because we're we're blind, oftentimes, by our success. Listen to just a few verses. Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded to him. What we do with success is a test from God. What we do with blessing is a test from God. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. A recipe for disaster. Here's how it begins. It is the time of the year that kings go to war. That kings lead their troops. That kings step up and they lead because they are called to be leaders. But it says that David sends Joab and David stays home. David needed a little me time. David, maybe he was tired. Maybe he was weary. Maybe he was, we don't know. But instead of doing what he was called to do and serving in the way he was called to serve, he decides he's going to take a break. He saw a beautiful woman bathing and decided that he had to have her now. He inquires about who she is, but by this time, her beauty has aroused him, and he has decided, hey, I'm the king. I'm the king. I can take that. I can do this. It is within my power in that culture. Women really didn't have much choice anyway, but when the king wanted something, the king got it. He calls for her, he orders it, and he takes her. He fulfills his lust, and he feels like he can because he is the king, and he has a desire. The recipe for disaster, folks, usually begins with this insidious thing called entitlement. 
Entitlement comes from a number of ways, uh, places that make us very vulnerable to sin. First one, of course, is position. I am in a position where I can do what I want to do. I am, I am the head. No one can stop me. No one is over me. No one, I'm, I'm, I'm the king. I, therefore, I don't have to follow the rules. Watch out. The rules don't apply to me. Watch out. Entitlement oftentimes comes from sacrifice. We have made a great sacrifice. We have done something great for God. We have given a lot to God. We have, we have gone to other countries. We are in the ministry and preaching and see many people saved and touched. And because we've made a sacrifice, we feel like now we're, we're entitled to something. We don't have to play by everybody else's rules because we've made a bigger sacrifice. And so we become entitled. The other way we get entitled is suffering. We've gone through a lot of pain. We've gone through a lot of loneliness. We've had people die around us. We've had people betray us. We've had horrible things happen to us. And we we get this feeling like, God will understand. I can just go ahead. I don't have to follow the rules right now. God knows I'm in pain, so I'm going to just, I'm going to do what I want to do because I deserve it. Entitlement. And who's going to find out anyway? Beautiful woman. It's a one-night thing. They're already, her husband's off to war. I know her husband, she's off to war. No one's going to find out. So he goes ahead and sleeps with her. Then something unforeseen happens. She gets pregnant. Okay. Not a great result. Certainly didn't want to hear it. Certainly an inconvenience. But David's a clever guy. I I can hide this. So he sends to bring her husband home. Her husband's named Uriah the Hittite. He sends to bring her home. And, and uh, he, he, gets, he gets a little leave. And David thanks him for his service. And, you know, you go home now and, you know, just enjoy your wife and have some time. And, and Uriah says, I, 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 I'm not going to go home and be with my wife. How could I possibly enjoy my wife when the troops are out there suffering? The troops are out there. And he sleeps outside of the palace on the the steps because he doesn't want to have a privilege that the rest of the troops don't have. Do you see how different they are? We've got one very entitled and one just in the spirit of serving. Uh, Okay, this is a problem. But David, once again, David's very clever. We'll see how he feels if I get him a little drunk. So the next night, he has Uriah got a special thing for you, and they come, and he drinks wine with Uriah and makes sure that Uriah is, it gets out of his regular mind, and because surely he's going to go home and sleep with his wife and cover this thing up, and the baby will be his baby, and no one will ever know different. The problem is Uriah, even in that state, refuses to go home. So David's got, David's a problem solver. 
We got we to gotta go to another level. So he sends a note. This is horrible. By Uriah's own hand, a, a, a sealed note to give to Joab, the commander of the army. And so he takes it to Joab. Uriah gives it to Joab. This is from King David, really important. He opens it up and says, I want Uriah dead. Get him near the the city wall, back away, and let him get killed. I want him dead. And so that's exactly what happens. And the little mess, the little embarrassment for David is all cleaned up nice and tidy. Point two, the enormity of the sin. Nathan comes in. Nathan is his advisor, also a prophet. And Nathan says, sir, um, we've got something that's happened in the kingdom. We've got a, a very wealthy man. He's got all these flocks, all these sheep, all of these animals, and he had visitors to his house. And instead of taking one of his own lambs, he said, there's, a, there's another guy in his kingdom. He, just, he only has one lamb, and that lamb is like a child to him. He, he feeds it from his own hand. He cuddles with it at night. It's the only thing he has. It's like one of his children. It is his pride and joy. And this rich, wealthy king, in, er, man, instead of taking one of his own from the flock, he, he takes this one treasured lamb from this poor man and slaughters it to feed his guests. And David is just infuriated. He's just infuriated at the injustice of this. And he says, whoever that man is, he should die. And Nathan says this, you're the man. You are that man. First, I want you to consider David's sin against Uriah. 2 Samuel 23, it lists David's mighty men. These are the most loyal men, the most sacrificial, the men that will go anywhere for David. Do you know the last one that's listed? Is Uriah the Hittite. This is one of his friends. This is one of his most loyal servants. This is a man that has risked his life for him. And David has him murdered. First, he he takes his wife, knowing it's his wife, and then he has him murdered secretly. Whoa, this is betrayal at a whole nother level. And then he says this, Nathan then said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. 
Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. The Bible says, to whom has been given much, much is required. And I don't know that anybody in the Bible had more than David. And God says, the incredible ungratefulness that you have shown to me, I have done all of this for you. I have done miracle after miracle after miracle. I've given you everything. And notice what God says. And if that had been too little, I had many other things I could have done for you. All you need to do is bring your unmet desire, your unmet lust, your unmet loneliness, your unmet whatever it is that's driving you and bring it to me and ask me and let me help you. I've got good things for you. I'm a good father. I've been good to you, David. And this is how you've treated me. This is like slapping me in the face. Then he says these words. You have caused my enemies to blaspheme. Why? Here's why. David has told everybody. David's written the Psalms. He sets up this tent for prayer. Everybody knows David's God's man. You want to see what God's like? Look at David. David is the guy. David is in love with God. David delights in God. David David and God are just like this. They're just in union with each other. And when David's enemies see what he has done and what he is capable of, it undermines their faith. It undermines their, they might have gotten saved. They might have come to God. They might have been interested in God. But if this is what it's really like, I want no part of it. David, you have made me look really, really bad. And you're hindering other people from coming to me. And then the enormity of the consequences He is forgiven, but there are consequences. So Randy Frazee, in the the book that we're reading, some of us are reading, tells about this young man in West Texas. And this young man growing up in his, his mom and dad's house, he's just, he's bitter because his mom and dad refused to get indoor plumbing. And they keep, they just have this outhouse, right? They have to, to, to get to the outhouse. The outhouse is over by the river. So you, you have to, in the summer, you have to leave the house. And in the middle of the, the, the heat and the sweat, it just stinks in there. 
He hates this outhouse. And in the winter, it's freezing. You have to go out, you have to leave. In the middle of the night, you got to go out, get out there, and it's freezing. He just, he hates the outhouse, and he resents that they don't have an inside bathroom. So one day, he sees his opportunity. It's pouring rain, which it's all, so it's already slippery underneath. It's early in the morning, nobody's up. He looks around, and he pushes the outhouse into the river. It feels really good pushing that thing out, and there it goes down the river. Mm. Goes back to bed, gets up. He's not feeling as good about it. He, 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 he doesn't see his dad in the morning, and he's feeling, he's feeling guilty, and he's feeling bad about it, and he's like you know, thinking about how he could cover it up, how he could lie about it, and, and, and he's going to have to see his dad at some point, and all day long he doesn't see his dad. He doesn't see his dad until supper. And he has come to a conclusion by supper. And his dad, first thing he says at the table, son, did you push the outhouse into the river? And he has come up with his own strategy during the day. He was originally going to try to deny it, and he had just decided, he had decided something different. He said, Father, I want, to, I want to confess to you. Yes, it was me. I pushed the outhouse into the river. And his dad says, son, after, immediately after dinner, you and I are going to the woodshed. And he says, Dad... He says, the story's told that, that when George Washington cut down that cherry tree and, and he confessed it to his dad, his dad be, rewarded his honesty by, by not having any consequences. And he says, son, that might be true. He said, but George Washington's dad wasn't sitting in the cherry tree that he cut down. <laughs> Sometimes there, there has to be consequences. <laughs> I just, I threw that in there because the next part of this message is so brutal. He says the sword will never depart from your house. Sword's already in the house. David already had an anger problem. David, when, when Nabal had treated him wrong, he had decided that Nabal and all of his house was going to be slaughtered because they didn't feed and treat their men right, and he's on his way to slaughter them, and Abigail stops him, and Abigail says, you know, don't do this, and David says to Abigail, thank you. You have saved me from shedding Blood and from avenging myself, from using my sword to solve my problems. I, I, I would have done this. I would have sinned. He's already got this anger problem that rises up and this idea that I can use my sword to solve problems. He already has this. This is in his house. It's in his 
spiritual DNA, and it's already been passed to his kids. And God says, I could have, if you, if you had conquered this thing, if you had overcome this thing, I could have removed this from your house. I, I, if you had won, if you could have got a victory here, uh, your children could have had victory too. But now, the sword's going to stay in your house. And here's what happens. First thing that happens is his oldest son, Amnon, sees his daughter through another mom named Tamar. Tamar is absolutely beautiful, gorgeous, very much like Bathsheba. And Amnon decides, just like David did, I have to have her. Whatever the price, I have to have her. So he sets up this little plan, and he rapes. He rapes his sister. Absalom, her brother, by, not just by David, but also by the same mom, Absalom makes a plan where he is going to kill Amnon. And he uses his friends, but he kills Amnon a couple years later. The sword is in the house. Absalom then plans this big rebellion. And he comes back into the house. He takes up the sword against his own father. When he comes into Jerusalem, David has, has gone out of Jerusalem. And so what he does to let everybody know, this is, there's no return. If you follow me, you know I'm not going back to David. There's no way I'm going back to David. So he takes David's concubines, 10 of them, something like that, and he sleeps with them in public view on the roof of the house. Everybody can see it. What David did privately, God said, I'm going to expose publicly, one very close to you. I don't know if you could get closer than your own son. After Absalom is killed by his military general, Joab, with a sword, another son, Adonijah, wants to be the king. And Solomon is God's choice. So after Solomon uh, is chosen, David rests in peace. And we get the end of the story. Solomon, another son, takes the sword and kills Adonijah. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the man God delights in. This is, this is, this, it, honestly, it's hard to read 2 Samuel. From chapter 12 on, it's hard to read it. It's just how could so many painful, horrible, devastating things happen? The enormity of the consequences. Here is the issue with God. God does not just see your sin. God, God sees everything. In Luke 19, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. Why is he weeping? Because he doesn't just see their sin. He sees all at once the consequences of this sin. Time is open before him. He sees where this is leading. Here's what he says to them. He's weeping. And he says, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he approached Jerusalem, he wept. If you, even you only know on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Let's keep it going. There's more. Oh, I'll give you verse 44. Here's why. Because you have missed 
the time of your visitation. The word time is kairos. It's, it's an opportune time. It's a window of time. It's God's time. There was a time open, an opportunity for you to repent. There was a time that your eyes were open, that you could respond, that you could have repented. But now that opportunity is gone, and this is what's going to happen. And it's not just going to affect you. It's going to affect your kids. It's going to affect everybody. You had a chance and you didn't take it. They missed their kairos, the kairos opportunity. Did you know that we're still in a kairos? Paul says, now is the day. Now is the time or the kairos of salvation. We are, praise be to God, we're still in an an opportune time. We have not missed it. The very fact you're here today tells me that it's not hidden from your eyes yet. You're you're still seeing. However you've responded, the opportunity is still open or you would not be here today. David has to look back at that one night stand and say these words to himself. Was it worth it? If anybody gets a hindsight view, they're going to say, oh my, it was, not, it was so, so not worth it. It was one night. It was one impulse. It was one entitlement. It was one. It, this was a disaster, and I brought it on myself. So God wants to save us. He wants to save us from entitlement. He wants to save us from sin. He wants to keep us. So where we have blown it, he wants to grant us true repentance. And that's point three, and we're, we're almost done. How do you truly repent? One of the blessings that God used David for us is that he wrote Psalm 51, which is the psalm of how to repent. Here's here's how it begins. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first step to true repentance is to remember God's mercy. David was just filled with this. David wrote in Psalm 103, 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your mercy towards those who fear you. You you are a merciful God. Mercy is on your mind. Those who fear him simply means this, those who care about what God thinks. If you care about how God feels about you, what God is thinking about you, you, you are in a place of great Mercy. And in the midst of sin, we need the mercy of God. We need to recognize our sin, however horrible it is, does not take us away. Only we can take ourselves away if we stay away from God. God is a merciful God. He wants us to come to him for his mercy in our sin. Secondly, we have to own our sin. Psalm 51, 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. 
Sin is always, always twofold. It always affects people, even when we think we can sin privately and it's not affecting anybody. No, it does. It affects people. There's always a sin against people, even if it doesn't seem like it. But sin always starts out as being, first and foremost, against God. When the prodigal repents, he says, I, Father, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against heaven. All sin is against heaven. All sin. Because whatever you do to the least of these, you, Jesus says, you did it to me. I took it personal. The, the, the second commandment's like the first. The first is to love God, and the second is to love people. And they're, they're, like, they're very much the same, because in loving people, you are pleasing God, the God that made them. And when we betray people, we have betrayed God. Sin always starts out against heaven. He says against you and you alone have I sinned. He says you desire truth in the innermost part. You can fake people, but you can't fake God. You can hide your sin from people. You can't hide it from God. So what's the key? Owning it. Agreeing with how God feels about your sin. Maybe you've called it something else. Maybe you've excused it. Maybe you say, that's just my personality. Maybe you've excused it because you were tired. You were this. You were that. Stop it. Stop it. You're never going to get mercy hiding your sin. Proverbs 28, 13 He who hides his, he who confesses his sin obtains mercy, but he who hides it, it leads to something. Anyway, okay, I don't have that one. <laughs> Look it up. It's Proverbs 28, 13. <laughs> First John 1, 9, at least I know this one. Confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. cleanses us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins and then be willing to make it right with people. This is tough. It says, when you come to the altar to bring your gift and you realize there that that somebody's holding something against you, that that you've sinned against somebody and you've hurt them in some way, leave the gift there, go make it right with the people and then come back and then your gift will be acceptable to God. God's really into us making it right. And like, I don't want to make it right. I feel stupid making it right. We had an incident last year and a committee in our church uh, made some decisions and one of, one of our staff had an experience and so the answer to that was to do this and, and the, I don't know why I was even included in the email because I'm not on the committee but they included me on and this is what they were planning on doing and, and it, it stirred up a wound in me because of the, 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 what they were going to do and um, I'm a pastor, I'll just say what I think. And so I, sa- I spoke way too quickly and way too strongly in email. To- and I sent it out to everybody. And I basically just took our staff person and put them under the bus. I, I just basically made it sound like the Christian thing would be to do it this way, da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, I'm the pastor. Well, w- when you're the pastor, you're in a power position, and it's really unfair for you to give your opinion 
that strongly, especially when you're not even on the committee. You gave authority to these people. Now you're commenting on their decision based on your little thing, and you put them in an impossible. Of course, I didn't see it right away. Somebody helpfully pointed it out to me. And, and when they did, I, w- I, w- I saw it. I just saw it very quickly. And I'm like, oh my, this is so wrong. So I send another email out to everybody. Hey, this is my bad. Uh, no right to speak. What, the decision you guys have is fine. Um, just, it was just wrong. You know, please forgive me. Done, right? It's done. No. No. I'm, I'm in worship and make, bringing my gift to God. We're in our morning prayer. And the Lord's saying, I, I, I want you to go talk to him and personally tell him that you are sorry for what happened. I'm like, Lord, he's not even thinking about it. He's, it's over, Lord. It's over. Have you ever had God say it's not over till I say it's over? <laughs> if it's an issue still with God, it's still an issue. And really, all it's going to cost me is a little pride. All it's going to cost me is a little inconvenience, a little st- feeling stupid. And so it, you just, you just do, do hard things. We have to value God's presence so much that we're willing to do awkward things. And then asking for change, not just forgiveness. Psalm 51 10 through 13, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Now here we see the actual origin of sin. David says in, in Psalm 18, 28, he says, you keep my lamp burning. Folks, the, the burning of God is the, is the presence of God. It's the Holy Spirit. The, the way this thing got off, the way he got vulnerable is his heart was no longer burning. He had no longer treasured and valued the presence of God and the spirit of God. And it is so right when he comes back, he realizes. See, the idea that we're going to be holy, it not, it, it, it's not going to happen. Holiness is the Holy Spirit through the grace of God growing in our lives. That's how you become really holy. You could clean up the outside of the cup by willpower, but a true change requires the grace of God. Holiness is an unfolding relationship with the grace of God. David says, this, this is where I got off. Uh, re, re, don't ca- Whatever you do, take away the castle, take away my money, take away whatever. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This is sometimes what it, what it takes. And listen, listen to what Jesus said. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Luke 12, 35. This is the key to holiness. It's not trying to stay out of trouble. Keep your lamp burning for God. 
Keep that fire burning. Keep, let, wait on God and receive the, the fire of the Holy Spirit. If you don't, your spiritual apathy is affecting everybody. It's affecting those around you. It's affecting your classmates. It's affecting your siblings. It's affecting your children. It's affecting everybody. Your spiritual apathy. And say, well, Pastor Tom, I just, you know, I, I don't really operate that way. I, you know, what do you mean spiritual? I mean passion. Okay, well, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. Well, I got great news for you. The Bible says in, in Matthew 12, 20 that Jesus will not put out a, a smoking wick or a smoldering wick. If, if you've got no fire in you right now, Jesus is not here to despise it and to put it out and to say, no, no, Jesus is the only one that can produce that fire. And so just bring your heart, bring your apathy, bring your coldness. He, he, he's here to take out the stone and to give us a heart of flesh. It's not okay to be half-hearted with God. It's not okay. In fact, it's, it's extremely dangerous for you and for those around you. Repent. Let your hearts burn. Be ready for service. There's a place of service for every single one of us in this congregation. There is a place of activity. You don't know what it is? We got a little volunteer manual of different ways that you can serve. Not that it's the end all to serve in this church. You, there, we're called to serve. We need to find our place to serve. It is essential to keeping our hearts burning. When it's time for kings to go to war, we better be at war and not staying at home doing our own thing. I got one amen, praise God. It's better than none. And then he says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to thee. What's he saying? Jesus, I am so sorry that I have affected others in a negative way by my sin. Now, God, restore that joy back. Send the Holy Spirit again. I want to honor your name. I, hallowed be your name. I want to carry your name. I want my life to be a drawing card again. And forever, anyone that comes, I will own. Yes, I sinned. That wasn't God. That was me. But God has forgiven me. And the good news is he can forgive you too. Sinners will be converted. My story, God can use to convert others to himself. And then finally, embracing the Father's embrace. Listen to Psalm 51, 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. This is the most incredible thing to understand. What God wants is you, not your performance. Your bad performance or your good performance. What God wants is you. He wants fellowship with you. And the Bible says when the prodigal comes home, when he takes a step home, this is very hard for us to grasp. But when the father sees him a long way up, the father starts running for joy. The older brother is thinking about how much he sinned and how bad it is and how much he deserves. The father is only thinking about my son that was lost has come home. Celebrate. Get a ring on his finger. 
Get shoes on his feet. Get those dirty garments off. Get something white on him. My son is back. This is how God feels every time we repent. Understanding that and embracing that is key to you staying free from sin. So this man comes to me, this minister, this is how I end, and he says, you are, you are the second most important person in my life. Here was what, I, what we talked about. He had told me his sin. He had, a, he had a problem with pornography, and he was just enslaved to it. And I said, bro, let me tell you what happened to me. I was pastoring Mad City Church at the time, and I had heard about some sexual sin that was going on in our congregation. I was just spitting mad. I was just spitting mad because it was, it was affecting other people. It was, it was bad, and I, it was one of those days. I had just found out about I was on my way to a meeting that was here. This was Lake City at the time, and that, that my office now was a conference room then, and all the pastors were meeting in there, and then we had this time of prayer together, and I'm pacing back and forth. I'm not praying a single thing these guys are praying. I'm thinking about my message Sunday morning, because I'm, I'm preaching on Sunday morning. I'm going to preach, go and sin no more. I'm taking from my text that. Go and sin no more. A Christianity where you go on and keep sinning is not real Christianity. Go and sin no more. And I'm just getting more worked up as I walk. And all of a sudden, God speaks to me. Here's the flow of thoughts that comes into my mind, completely unbidden, absolutely in contradiction to how I was thinking. Here's what he said. The power to go and sin no more is in believing the words, neither do I condemn you. Just to bring you up to date, a woman is caught in the very act of adultery. She is brought out, and the, the Pharisees have got her, and they, they, they are ready to stone her. They've all got stones in their hand. And they tell Jesus what the law says. The law was given by the very, the Ten Commandments are given by the very hand of God. God wrote the law twice because the first, the first batch got broken. God himself wrote the law with his own hand twice. And as they're telling him what the law says and what the penalty of the law, Jesus writes on the dirt twice. What, 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 what's going on here? Jesus is the lawgiver. Don't tell me what the law says. I know what the law says. And absolutely, the law requires death. He says, whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. They, they all leave. It's just the Holy Son of God and this woman. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? None, Lord. He, he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you know what it cost Jesus to say those words? Because Jesus said, the, the law's not passing away. Everything has to be fulfilled in the law. The only way he can say those words is if he's willing to take her place and die in her place. That's how he gets the authority. He, he was going to die. He shed his blood. Sin was so serious that God could not 
just arbitrarily forgive. Jesus had to die. The law had to be fulfilled. The law against you and me that said we are guilty, that we deserve death, just like David deserved to die. We deserve to die. And Jesus, sent by the Father in perfect love, says these words, on the basis of my shed blood, on the basis of the price I paid, on the basis of what love has done for you, here's how you're going to get free. Neither do I condemn you. You are clean. You are free. You are washed. Now go and live in fellowship with God. What happened in this minister is he had been trapped He was so condemned all the time. Guys, if you feel dirty all the time, it's really easy to do dirty. If you got your dirty clothes on, it's easy to get in mud. And what happened that day when we met, I was just talking, telling my stories. I preached to everybody. I don't care. But the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, I'm not condemning you. I want you free. I came to cleanse you and to wash you. You, you don't have to try to sin no more to, to make up for it or to, to, to be good enough. I, I, don't, I don't want you operating out of that. That's a by, you're bypassing the cross to try to punish yourself for your own sin, to make yourself feel guilty enough. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. And, and use the, your own anger at yourself to do better. Guys, you're bypassing the cross. That's why Jesus died. Jesus says, bring it to me. Embrace my embrace. I love you. I'm crazy about you. Let me fill you. Let me run to you. Let me get my arms around you. I want you to live life from the party of my grace where you know you're a son, a daughter. You know that you've got my white robe of righteousness. You've got sandals on your feet to remove the shame of past sin. What Jesus does on the cross is more than just forgive us. He restores us to full fellow. There's no second-class Christians, folks. There's just favored sons and daughters. Could we stand together? Two calls today. Here's the first one. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't know that you're forgiven, I want you to know that your whole life has has been pointing to this. God's waiting for you to come home. Jesus died for you so that you could come home. If you are a Christian, but you've been away from home, You still have a relationship, but you've been out of fellowship. And you've been stuck in some type of sin. Maybe maybe the sin hasn't, the big sin hasn't even happened yet, but what's happened is apathy, spiritual apathy. It's just a matter of time, folks. If we're bored, we're going to end up going the wrong way. And you want to bring your apathy, you want to repent of apathy today. So whether it's the first time or you're coming home again, would you just open your arms like this? Close your eyes. Doesn't matter what your friend's doing. This is you and God. This is God time. 
Lord, I want to thank you that there's a still a kairos for us. There's our, our opportunity has not passed us. We are not spiritually blind here today. We wouldn't be at church, I don't think, if we were spiritually blind. We'd be out doing something else. Wow, wow, there's an opportunity here. Jesus, for my sake, for the sake of my children, for the sake of my associates, for my neighbors, Jesus, I repent. I, I come home to you. Lord, I bring my sin, no matter how vile, no matter how hidden, no matter how long I have been in it, makes no difference. Jesus' blood didn't just die for, he didn't just die for little sins, he died for every sin. And he knew all along that he was the only key to you getting free from it. So Jesus, we bring our sins to you at the cross. We bring them to the cross. We give you our stone hearts. We give you our dry hearts. We give you our smoldering wick. Send your fire, Jesus. Lord, break entitlement in us. If we have suffered and we've just kind of excused ourselves because we've been in so much pain, God, we, we want to bring our pain to you. We want to bring our, 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 our sense of injustice to you, God. And, 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 and we say, Jesus, this is the greatest injustice, what happened to you on the cross. I don't want to live in self-pity anymore. And Lord, if we've abused our position in authority, we have given ourselves a pass because we can. Please, Jesus, please forgive us. Please forgive us for using our power as dad, as boss, as husband to abuse rather than to serve. Please forgive us, Jesus. Please forgive us. Wash us. Cleanse us. And Lord, I, I know, I know it because of my friend that came to me. It's not enough to leave the sin. We've got to embrace your embrace. We've got to see that you're for us, not against us. You want us close all the time. Jesus, come and burn in us. Father, I pray for us individually, but I also pray for us corporately. Would you, Jesus, restore the joy of our salvation so that we would be a drawing card not to city church, to Christianity, to Jesus. And when people come and say, you're a hypocrite, say, you know what? I'm not. A hypocrite would be somebody that says they hadn't sinned and is trying to t convince everyone, I, I have sinned, and, but I've confessed it. And now Jesus has forgiven me, and I'm on a new beginning. Jesus, we give you permission to bring the lost into this place for your great name. For your great name. Lord, we live in a land that your name has been soiled and stained and it's, it's a swear word that people use all the time. Would you in our hour, in our day, in this generation, would you raise up your great name? Could the fear of the Lord be in this nation again? Lord, I believe I believe you're, you're weeping over America right now. Not because it's too late, but because there's an opportunity that we might be squandering. So help us, Jesus.
In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Here's how we're ending today. We're going to bring the lights down instead of up. We're going to open up the altars. If, if you've got kids, please get, oh, most of the kids are here. I'm going to encourage you to, to just let's make the sanctuary uh, an altar. The whole sanctuary is an altar. You can come to the front if you want to. I'll be up here, but uh, we're not going to have ministry teams. We're just going to worship and pray and ask for that fresh fire from heaven. And obviously, if you need to go at any point, no problem. No, no guilt, no shame. Go and be blessed. But if we could save our fellowship for out there and allow the sanctuary to be a place of prayer, I'd really appreciate it. God bless you, folks.